Well, this morning, uh, the, our topic that we're going to take a look at is justice. We'll be talking about uh, justice of God. Justice is a concept that uh, really from the beginning was at the foundation of our country. So if you look back in something like the Declaration of Independence, uh, the writers of the Declaration stated that, that governments are, are, are given just powers from the consent of the governed. So they recognized that power was to be used in a just manner. Uh, the Declaration also states that the King of England was obstructing the administration of justice. That was one of the kind of the bullet points in there. Um, it's even stated that the citizens of England at that time were, were themselves deaf to the voice of justice. So the theme of justice comes up in the Declaration of Independence multiple times. Our Constitution that was written a few years after that begins with the words, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice. So right off the bat, justice is mentioned there. And even, even something like the Pledge of Allegiance, that was written like 100 years later, but, but that speaks of our republic having justice for all, right? So, so we know that that's something that, 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 is, that is kind of baked into to who we are as a nation. Now, now, to be sure, there are numerous understandings and viewpoints about what exactly constitutes justice. And so because of that, there are both good and bad examples of attempts to pursue justice. Those, those pursuing justice or what they believe to be justice often do so based on their understanding that there are injustices in our society or in our world. And and they need to be addressed. They need to be remedied. But for all the good and bad examples of justice we see in our society today, we would do well to recognize that the desire for justice, and, and Jim alluded to this when he read our scripture reading this morning, that that desire is a direct result of our being made in the image of God. We were created by a just God to live in a reality marked by justice. Now, once sin entered creation, entered mankind, sin sprouted and grew into a plant which bears the fruit of injustice. And from that moment onward, and you see it really right off the bat in, in Cain's killing of Abel especially, injustice has spread throughout all creation. But while injustice has spread across and dominated creation, it, it did not infiltrate God. His character is unchanged. He remains as just as he's ever been. He, he's the definition of justice. He's the source of justice, and he remains that even today. And, and so what we're going to see as we continue looking in the book of Micah, we're going to see that because God's justice remains firm, that means that there is judgment upon sinful humans. God's justice remains firm even when it's not 
enjoyable or it's not pleasant for us as sinful humans. So what we're going to do is we're uh, as I've said the last few weeks, there, there's, uh, there's three messages that, that Micah speaks in the book of Micah, and we're going to look this morning at five different times in those three messages that, that Micah spoke about the judgment that was going to overtake God's people. The judgments that were foretold were not ones that were pleasant, as we're going to see this morning. And because of that, it might be enough to, to make us wonder, is God really being fair in these judgments that he's bringing? Is he indeed still just based on what we read? Or, or has God become angry and offended and, and justice has just, just gone out the window and it's been replaced by malice? Is that what's going on in, in uh, the messages that Micah is proclaiming? So, so let's see how Micah speaks about judgment this morning, the judgment of God that was coming on his people. And so I'd, I'd encourage you to turn there with me. It's page 776 in the Pew Bibles. And as we study each of these five statements that, the, that's made about God's just judgment, we need to make sure to notice a couple things each time. We need to look at the description of what God's just judgment looks like, and all of these will describe his judgment. And then we also need to look at the reasons given for God bringing that judgment on his people. So what the judgment looks like and why it is coming upon God's people. So, so we're going to start in Micah chapter 1, and we will, uh, the first one we will look at begins in verse 10. So Micah says, Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. In Bethlehem, roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zanan do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Azel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Maroth wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Moresheth Gath. The houses of Achzib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Merishah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Now, if those verses seem difficult to understand at first glance, there's good reason for that, okay? The, what Micah is doing here is he's listing some of the place names in the southern nation of Judah to the southwest of Jerusalem. So he's got a, a, a specific geographical area that he's speaking about in this section. And as he proclaims God's judgment, what he's doing is he's listing these towns and he's, he's using puns and, and word plays and the meanings of names to drive home his point. The problem is that when you translate that from Hebrew into English, we lose all of it, 
right? Th those, are, those are literary devices that don't translate when you go from one language to another. So, so to kind of help us understand how it might have sounded to the people then, here's what Micah might have said to us here in Eureka if God's judgment in the form of the Assyrian army was, was coming upon us. So Micah might have said to us, he might have said, the flower of hardship will first bloom in Bloomington. He might have said, those in Hudson ought to hide their sons. Destruction is not going to pass by El Paso. Congerville will congregate at the cemetery. It's not going to be so good for Goodfield. And God's judgment is found in Eureka. Now we get those, right? Especially the last one, what's Eureka mean? I found it, right? So, so we hear it when it's in English. Now, in that example, not only can we, can we visualize the path that the Assyrian army would take, right? Starting in Bloomington, coming up by 39, and then down through, right? I mean, we can visualize it, but not only that, the, the, the usage of those literary devices would cause the message to stick with us. We'd probably remember it longer. So, so I'm not going to spell out the specific connections and the specific puns and word plays being used. I, I think it's simply enough to just recognize what Micah is doing as he lists all these, all these towns. A good thing to know is that around 700 BC, Assyria did indeed come southward down along the Mediterranean coast came and made its way into the Shvela region, which is where all these towns are. And even though Assyria was not victorious in uh, conquering Jerusalem, these smaller towns were demolished. Archaeologists suggest that, that the inhabited sites in this region uh, dropped from about 300 sites in the 8th century BC, which is right before Assyria, right before they invaded, it dropped to less than 50 in the 7th century BC, which was right after Assyria invaded. So, so God's judgment, as Micah was proclaiming it here, did come. And, and it was difficult. And there was destruction in these towns that are, that are listed. But the question this morning is, was it just? Was God's judgment just? Well, the ending of verse 13 gives us the reason for God's judgment. It says that in you were found the transgressions of Israel. And we know from what we studied last week that uh, idolatry was a major issue in northern Israel. Uh, the other prophetic books in the Bible contain further examples of the evil that, that uh, was in northern Israel. So that same evil had made its way to southern Judah. And so God justly judged what he saw there. So that's the first example that Micah gives to us. The, uh, the second example starts in chapter 2. Look with me at verse 1. Micah goes on and he says, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. 
They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall, walk, you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate, he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. So in verses 3 through 5, we get the details regarding, regarding judgment. Uh, the people were going to be humbled by Assyria. They, they were no longer going to walk haughtily or proudly. They were going to be mocked by others, referenced by this taunt song spoken against them. They were going to be left inheritance-less. That's referenced by, by the lack of someone to cast the line by lot. You know, in today's terms, you might say there's no surveyor to mark out the land for inheritance, right? So, so the destruction, the judgment is described. And, and again, the question is, why is God bringing this judgment? Is he just in doing so? Verses 1 and 2 inform us that, that there were people driven by pride and greed. People were proud, right? They, they, it led them to perform acts of evil simply because they had the power and, and the desire to do it. And so it's noteworthy that not only is God's judgment just, but his justice can be seen through the similarities between the people's actions and God's judgment. So, so the people were proud. God's judgment would leave them humbled. Uh, they had power in their hand. Well, they would have no ability to remove God's judgment from their neck. They wouldn't have that kind of power. Uh, they coveted fields, stole houses. God's judgment would leave them without land, without inheritance. So God's judgment is right in line with their evil. Perfectly just, we might even say. Another example of his justice is seen in chapter 3. So look with me at chapter 3, verse 5. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision, and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there's no answer from God. So here the focus is on the prophets among God's people, or at least those who claimed to be God's prophet. God's judgment would leave them no longer able to receive messages or visions. Uh, they would feel shame because of their lack of ability to prophesy. And so, yet again, we, we can say, well, why is God bringing this judgment? And what we see is in verse 5, the, they spoke prophecies in order to benefit themselves. That's all they were concerned about. If someone compensated them for their prophecy... Right, if they gave them something to eat, well, yeah, then the prophecy will be good. You know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, kind of a thing. But then the flip side of that is if, if they're not compensated, if there's no food in their mouths, then, then the prophecy would be bad news. 
right? That's how the prophets were functioning, very self-centered. And so judgment then is coming upon them. Uh, as I was personally reflecting on, on these verses, I, I was contemplating the pull that I can just sometimes, I can sometimes feel as a pastor to, to craft my words based on an anticipated response, right? There can be the temptation to, to soften a message or, or just not go there, you know, in order to avoid tension. The, the temptation can be to, to, to sacrifice truth on the altar of comfort or, or likability, and it's a, it's a temptation I know I have to constantly be aware of and, and stand firm against that when I feel it. And, and, and perhaps you feel that a similar kind of pull in, in situations in which you find yourselves. If we make it our habit to, to ignore the voice of God or, or, or to, to edit and change the voice of God when he, when he speaks to us, just because the message isn't the most pleasant one, then we ought not be surprised when, like these prophets, we stop hearing God speak. Because why would he speak to us if the message he gives isn't going to be communicated as he speaks it? And so that was happening here with the prophets. Um, another example of judgment is seen in chapter 3, verse 9. It says this, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. And it's speaking of the temple there when it talks about the mountain of the house. So God's judgment will leave Jerusalem like, like a barren farmland or like a, like a heap of rubble. The temple mount will be nothing more than an overgrown hill. And why is God bringing this judgment? Well, we see that the rulers were seeking to build their kingdom unjustly. The kings, the priests, the, the prophets, they were performing their roles strictly for money. They were prideful and believed that Jerusalem would never face disaster. Well, God justly judged their wickedness and brought disaster upon them. The, the city which they were building up through evil, he would tear down through his judgment. Well, finally, the, the fifth example of God's just judgment is seen in chapter 6. And we'll start in verse 13 of chapter 6. It says, Therefore I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. 
You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab. You've walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, and you shall bear the scorn of my people. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered and when the grapes have been gleaned. There's no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth. There's, there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each haunts the other with each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and great and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar; the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchmen, of your punishment, has come, and now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor, have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. So, so Micah foretold that the nation would be struck. The, the people... Where they were working in, they were going to work in vain. Godly people would not be found among them. The, the, their trusted relationships would be marked by deceit and turmoil. And again, one more time, we might ask, why, why is God bringing this judgment upon his people? In chapter 6, verse 16, we see that the people have been walking in the ways of wicked kings. And not just any wicked kings, but, but widely considered the two worst kings that God's people ever saw. They were keeping the statutes of Omri and Ahab. And then in chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, we see that it's not just the ways of those wicked kings, but it's, it's, it's the evil within the people themselves, which is, which is being poured out within the nation. So... So in these five examples that, that we've looked at in the book of Micah, we see five prophecies about God's just judgment being poured out um, upon his own people. And the judgments can be difficult to read because they talk about very real suffering. I mean, this isn't just a story. I mean, this is real suffering that was prophesied and that did then take place. But they are God's just response to the sin and the evil which pervaded both northern Israel and southern Judah. If you remember back a couple weeks, uh, I said in my, in my overview sermon of the book of Micah that, that his messages of, of judgment do not contain overt calls to repentance. Uh, there's words of hope, which we will focus on more intently when we, when we study the concept of God's chosen remnant. So there's hope there, but, but there's no messages calling for repentance. So the question might be then, what's the point of these messages? Why proclaim certain 
judgments of God that will come among the people, like, why proclaim them if they can't be avoided? And, and as I was thinking about that question, my, my mind went to the Apostle Paul and, and his letter to the church in Rome. And I think as we, as we walk the famous Romans road, as it's called, I think we find the answers to our questions regarding these prophecies of God's just judgment. So, so if we think about the Romans road, the, the first stop on that road is Romans 3.23. Romans 3.23, it states, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now that truth is quite clear when we study the book of Micah, isn't it? I mean, Micah was consistent in listing not just that God's judgment was coming, but the specific reasons that God's judgment was coming upon his people. Right? I mean, those reasons centered on the fact that God's people were sinful. All the people were sinful. I mean, we saw in what we studied this morning that both the northern and the southern nation, all sinful. Both the leaders and the, the regular people. Both those in the important places like Jerusalem and the rural areas like that list of towns that we saw in chapter 1. And, and earlier in Romans chapter 3, Paul Man, Paul said it this way, and he's quoting from various Old Testament texts as he says this. He says, no, uh, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, for they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, or of snakes, is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. That pretty well sums it up. I mean, Paul is quite thorough there. Sums up the, uh, the people in the time of Micah. It sums up the people in the time of Paul. But it sums us up as well, doesn't it? Apart from God's work in our life, we are not righteous. We do not understand. We do not do good. We practice deceit. Uh, ruin and misery mark our ways. Aren't those fun words to preach this morning? Man, it makes us feel good, right? Uh, I don't like to preach those words because of what they say about me what they say about my own brokenness. Uh, I don't like to preach them because those are unpleasant words to tell another person, right, about, about themselves. Uh, but they're true words. They're true words which must be preached. In a world which tells us that people are generally good in and of themselves, God reminds us that due to our sinful nature, we are not generally good. We are generally sinful and fully guilty of our sin. And if that reality isn't bad enough, the next step on the Romans road 
calls us to reflect upon our just God. So Romans 6, 23, the first part of that verse says this, for the wages of sin is death. You know, in those five statements from Micah that we looked at, we noted how God responded with just judgment to the sin and the evil of the people. In Romans 6, Paul reminds us that God's just judgment upon our sin is seen through death. Death is that just judgment. From the, from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 2, God told Adam that to disobey his command would mean death. God didn't hide the fact that his just judgment upon sin would ultimately be seen in death. And his justice remained firm from that point forward. God told the people in Deuteronomy chapter 30, he said, if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. Same message. God said, just judgment on sin is death. Paul said earlier in in Romans chapter 5 that death comes through sin. Uh, James writes that when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Our God is a just God who justly judges our sin. So what is the purpose of Micah's prophecies about God's judgment upon sin? Why, Why does he write them? Well, it is to help people recognize their sinfulness Think about the northern nation of Israel, the southern nation of Judah. It was to help them look truthfully at themselves. And it was also to show God to be just in his judgment upon sin. Now, now the first two steps in the Romans road, first step and a half, really, are not fun for us to accept. I mean, they're just not. It forces us to recognize our sinfulness, for all have sinned, and, and it shows God to be just in his judgment upon our sin. The wages of sin is death. And because those, uh, because those two things are both true, we might rightly ask the question, is there any hope? <laughs> if we're guilty sinners, what hope is there for us? Is there any hope for me? Is there any hope for you? The good part is we've got two and a half steps yet to go on, on this Romans road. So let's, let's look at how hope is proclaimed as we keep walking along that road. The, the rest of Romans 6.23, um, well, I'll just start at the beginning again. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there is hope. There is hope there. Uh, There's hope because of Jesus. Now, remove Jesus from the equation, and we have no hope. But place Jesus into the equation, and we do have hope. We have abundant hope because of that. It's through his death on the cross, it's through his resurrection from the dead, that we sinners have hope. Our, Our sins which are well-established in the first step on the Romans road, those sins can be forgiven. And then rather than the judgment of eternal death, we are given the gift 
of eternal life. I mean, that's hope right there, isn't it? But we're talking about a just God this morning. So, so how does that all jive with the justice of God? Since when I place my faith in Jesus, God's judgment toward sin is no longer poured out upon me, does that mean that God is no longer just? I mean, that's a question that, that we should ask. Does God change the very fabric of his character in order to give me this gift of eternal life? And if he did, wouldn't that mean that he's no longer God? So he can't change, right? So how can God be just, continue to be just, and yet offer me this gift and not pour out his judgment upon me? And that's where, as we continue on the Romans road, it reveals that to us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 is the, the next step. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Remember, that's the just judgment upon sin, right? Death, that's, the, that's God's just judgment. For God to remain just, sin must be judged with death. That has to happen. And as I was thinking about that, I, it, it reminded me of the, the first National Treasure movie. I don't know if you've seen this before or not, but uh, in that movie, so there's Nicolas Cage, right? He's playing the part of Benjamin Gates. He's looking for this vast treasure that ends up being hidden under the streets of New York City. But, but in order to find it, he needs to, he needs the help of a treasure map that's on the back of the Declaration of Independence. And so he steals the Declaration of Independence so that he can look at the treasure map on the back. Now, of course, the authorities aren't real fond of that, right, stealing the Declaration. So they're seeking to arrest him. And, and so the movie goes on. At the end of the movie, he, he does find that treasure. And he's then sitting with the FBI agent who has been pursuing him. And they have this conversation in a church, no less, which is just kind of fitting with the point that I, that I want to make. But so, so Nicolas Cage has found this treasure and he's saying, you know, I, I want it to be split up among the museums of the world. I, I want the credit to be given to my family and the assistants who helped me in this. And lastly, he states, I'd really like to not go to prison. Fair enough, right? I'd really like to not go to prison. Because remember, he, he did steal the Declaration of Independence. And, and <laughs> The FBI agent, in response, says, well, someone has got to go to prison, Ben. Someone has got to go to prison, Ben. And there's, man, there's a profound truth in that statement. A crime was committed, and for justice to remain, the very justice which the document he stole speaks about, somebody has to go to prison, right? Someone must face the judgment for that crime. Sins have been committed, and for God's justice to remain, someone must face the judgment for those sins, for my sins. Somebody has to die. The judgment can't just simply be ignored, because if it was, God would no longer be just, and he would cease to be who he was, and, and, and that's it. 
But what Romans 5.8 tells us is that God's just judgment was given for sin, but instead of being given to us, it was given to Jesus, the perfect substitute who took that judgment for us. There was, there was lots of things happening on the cross on Good Friday, but one of the things is that God's just judgment was being shown upon sin. His justice was remaining as it was poured out upon Jesus hanging on the cross. Jesus died. He took that just judgment for us. And so because of that, God's character did not change. He did not become unjust when he pardoned us. He, he remains fully just. And then the, the final step on the Romans road expands on the outcome for us those of us who put our faith in Jesus. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So not only is God just, not only does he remain just, but he's also the justifier who, who makes us right with him. We are now justified. We, we are made righteous because of the work of Jesus upon the cross. Paul, Paul talked a lot about that in Romans chapter 3 as well. So through Jesus, through his taking God's just judgment upon himself, we are justified and saved when our faith is in him. So someone's got to face God's just judgment upon sin. Someone has to. But because of Jesus, we do have two options. Uh, first option, we can face that judgment ourselves. That is an option. But because God's just judgment upon sin is death, and, and not just physical death, but but spiritual death, eternal spiritual death as well. The final, that final outcome won't be good for us. That's not a good road to travel. The other option, we can place our faith in Jesus and allow him to be the one upon whom God's just judgment is poured out. And because we are then justified and saved, as Paul talks about, that final outcome for us is very good. That leads to eternal life rather than eternal death. So, so God's words through Micah ought to drive home in our minds the reality that our God is a just God. He does judge sin justly. And if you're here this morning, if you've not accepted the work of Jesus upon the cross and placed your, your faith in him, if you've not personally accepted that, I, I would encourage you to do that today. Jesus made a way for you to receive eternal life rather than eternal death. And he did so by taking that judgment upon himself. So I, I would so encourage you to accept that this morning, or at the very least, explore that further. And if you have already accepted the work of Jesus, if you have already placed your faith in him, then, 
let's give him the worship he deserves. <laughs> I mean, Jesus dying for me and for you is the highest expression of love that, that he could have given. I mean, that, that kind of love deserves to be proclaimed from the rooftops. I mean, that kind of love warrants our full worship of him. So it doesn't matter whether we've accepted that before or not, we have a response that we can give this morning to the fact that our God is just, and yet there's a way that we can be forgiven. And if we've already placed our faith in him, have been forgiven. So would you stand with me? We'll close our time this morning, but before I close in prayer, Let's, let's each take a moment to ourselves to just ponder God's character that we've talked about this morning and, and, and just kind of individually respond to him in silent prayer. I would encourage you to do that yourself here, and then, and then uh, I'll close us in prayer after a moment. Father, we give you praise this morning for, for who you are. We've looked intently into your justice this morning, and it's, it's wonderful that, that we can stand here as, as people who are born into sin, who have committed sin, and, and still rejoice that you are a just God, even knowing what that just judgment looks like. And it's all because you've, you've made a way for us. You've taken that just judgment upon yourself on the cross. And, and we praise you for that this morning, God. Someone had to receive that judgment and we're so thankful that you offered yourself in our place. Thank you for, for how that changes everything for us. We move from death to life. What a wonderful truth in that. And so God, we, we bow down before you because of it. We worship you in response to that. And God, would you help us to proclaim that in our world, God? That's a message that needs to be told. It needs to be heard. Would you give us opportunity for that? God, you are a, a wonderful God, both loving and just. And we praise you for it, God. And as we do so now through song, as we unite our voices together and corporately proclaim who you are. God, would you receive our worship? Would you, would you draw us even closer to you as, as individuals, but, but also as a church body? God, may we collectively fall more in love with you as we understand who you are in deeper ways. 
God, we pray these things in your name this morning. Amen.